Ian, you're part of a union as a Chicago public school teacher, right? Yep, proud member of the Chicago Teachers Union. I bring this up because we're going to try a slightly different format for our episode. My name is Caitlin Parrish. I'm a showrunner and writer and a member of the WGA. Most recently, I worked on the shows Foundation and Orbital for Apple and Netflix, respectively. For those of you not familiar, WGA stands for Writers Guild of America, a union of writers in television and film that have been on strike now for over a hundred days. It includes someone who has done writing. You have to have a writing job to my knowledge, to be a member of the guild, you have to have performed writing services to a certain degree on a union job to be eligible for guild membership. I actually have a little experience with this. We went on strike for two weeks back in 2019, and it was two weeks of hell, so I don't know how they're able to do this for 100 days. What are Caitlin and the rest of the WGA striking over? Well, there are multiple issues, but the big one we've been hearing about is something we covered on this podcast. Well, basically, the WGA and SAG, and and I'm certainly less informed when it comes to the exact demands of SAG, um, are both looking for some very strong language from our corporate partners, ensuring that obsolescence is not on the horizon with AI. For writers, we already have an example of this with, you know, chat GPT being able to generate scripts. They're not on par quality-wise with human writers yet, but looking at how exponentially quickly technology seems to grow more sophisticated, this seems like something that will happen, that could happen. And so we're looking for a preemptive strike with and from the studios, ensuring us that humans will not be replaced by AI to generate scripts at any uh, phase of the process. AI generated scripts. Didn't, Didn't we do an episode around GPT? Yep. It was about ChatGPT and the recent explosion of AI writing programs. So it turns out that episode neatly leads us into this current strike and the current impasse between the WGA and the AMPTP, the Association of Motion Pictures and Television Producers. That's basically all the big studios and streamers like Netflix. I think that AI is uh, a very prominent demand because it's very existential demand and it's one that not just artists are grappling with right now. A lot of people in a lot of industries and a lot of fields are thinking about how and when they might be replaced by machines or computers. I personally welcome our computer overlords at a certain point, um, but that question of soul has not yet been answered. I remember when we talked about GPT and how it could potentially upend all sorts of careers. It's wild that we're now starting to see policy fights about this and the future of some creative fields. I know, right? It was only at the beginning of this year that we covered that topic. Well, seeing as it's extremely relevant to Caitlin's union fight, maybe we should go over it again? That was my thought exactly. But let's not forget introductions. I'm Sadie Witkowski. And I'm Ian Martin. And you're listening to Carry the Two, a podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, a.k.a. IMC. This is the podcast where Sadie and I talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. Or in this case, we're reviewing our old episode on GPT-3 with a new twist. Now, let's jump straight into our January episode to cover the basics of ChatGPT and similar AI language models. And don't forget to hang around until the very end to hear a few last words from Caitlin about the WGA's fight. 
uh, it's it's very easy to be convinced by a model that seems human-like to think this model is going to be as trustworthy as a human. Humans are not all trustworthy, but at least you can trust that they understand language and know how to right. reason about it. Right? Mm, this sounds like someone who hasn't had to deal with teenagers in a minute, because let me tell you, they're not all great at explaining their reasoning. <laughs> Maybe computers are more trustworthy than teenagers? <laughs> mm, you think so? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, let me introduce Allison Ettinger. She's a computer linguistics researcher and faculty member in the computer science department here at the University of Chicago. Seems like she's the perfect person to explain GPT-3. I thought so, too, especially after asking her about our research field. Uh, I do computational linguistics, and for me what that means is a combination of work in natural language processing, language component of artificial intelligence, where the focus is on looking at the robustness of meaning extraction using methods of analysis and evaluation that are often inspired by areas of cognitive science. And then on the other side, um, we also take insights from what we get out of artificial intelligence Selectively so, and apply that to cognitive science questions. So we also do computational cognitive modeling, particularly psycholinguistic modeling, uh, that is looking using computational models to study uh, how the brain processes language in real time in humans. Okay, so now that we know what she does, what can she tell us about GPT-3? GPT-3 is a recent, very large example of a, a paradigm that has been dominant in natural language processing for a few years now, and this is the use of so-called pre-trained language models. And so what these models are is a type of model that is, it's a deep neural network model. Um, so it falls within this category of deep learning that folks may or may not have heard this, this buzzword. <laughs> um, and Pre-trained language models are trained in a particular way where the, the way that they learn everything that they know about language is by learning how to predict words in context. And I know this all sounds crazy technical or like something from science fiction, but we interface with these kinds of models all the time. Anytime that you are interacting, using language to interact with an artificial system like Google Translate or Google Search or Alexa, anything that you're using language to interface with an artificial system, that could roughly fall under natural language processing. Are we going to annoy our listeners if I say, hey, Google, or hey, Alexa? <laughs> Don't do that. Oh. And anyways, we aren't really going to focus on these examples of NLP. That's natural language processing. Why not? Well, when you get into NLPs that use audio commands, you're adding a whole new level of complexity. Not only does it have to understand language construction, but it's also going to deal with things like acoustics and accents and audio waveforms. For this episode, we really want to just stick to the programming required to understand language, like GPT-3. And besides, neither of them use GPT-3, right? Well, their software is proprietary, so they could have some elements of GPT-3 in there, but it's not the basis of their function, no. Then let's go back to NLP. That's the natural language processing idea. Yeah. So when I refer to NLP, I'm specifically referring to the subfield of artificial intelligence that is working on trying to better engineer language processing capabilities in AI. And so what we're trying to do there is design models that can try to process the things that humans say to those models, the things that humans type to those models, and be able to process that and produce outputs and some sort of semblance of understanding that will allow those models to do downstream tasks in a way that is effective and that reflects the way that humans would respond to language. 
So we're kind of using GPT-3 as this case study to understand more about this class of AIs in general and how they learn to write and respond to prompts that we give them. How do they learn? Honestly, there is a ton that we still don't know about exactly what it is GPT-3 has learned, how much it is just sort of producing stuff that it managed to memorize because we it's very <laughs> difficult to know exactly what it has seen and how similar the things it produces are to the things it has seen. So this is an ongoing challenge in the field um, because it's less interesting to us if it's just sort of uh, repeating, parroting things that it has seen before. So it has to already get a bunch of information in order to guess at a best response to you? Yeah, that's the idea in broad strokes. NLPs are pre-trained on a bunch of sentences and use that information to create distributions to make predictions. So if I say something like, he caught the pass and scored a touchdown, there was nothing he loved more than a good game of blank. You can, If you're familiar with American football, which <laughs> obviously not everyone is, but if you are, then you can guess very quickly that what should go there is uh, football because it's a very constrained type of context. And so you can use information from that context to predict what should come next. But in order to make that prediction, you need to know a lot of stuff about language. And so this is a type of learning signal that these models have uh, been able to take advantage of, and this has become an incredibly popular and an incredibly effective way of training uh, these deep neural network models to learn language. Basically, just teaching them how to predict stuff in context, and they learn things like sentence structure and things like, okay, things that are going to occur near drink are probably going to be liquid-like things. These are the types of information that intuitively you can expect to learn on the basis of prediction in context. And so this is the basic principle driving these language models. And so GPT-3 is an example of one of those such models, but it has just been scaled up massively and it's been trained on a ton, a ton, a ton of data. And, and so basically with more data and uh, more size in terms of the parameters of these models, uh, you tend to see continually increasing performance. And so GPT-3 is an example of that paradigm and it's been a particularly successful example. So in a simple sense, GPT-3 is literally just guessing the next word based on what it's most often seen before. That's what a basic NLP would do, yes. GPT-3 is more advanced than that, both because it has a ton of data that it's learning from and because it's making more wide-ranging predictions than just what word comes after another. It's very clear that it is able to generalize. It's not strictly producing things that it has memorized. There are ways to test that. But but, but the, exactly the balance of sort of memorization versus intelligent-looking generalization is still very much up in the air, I think. Okay, so GPT-3 is learning through experiences, aka the data we give it. But how is a computer able to generalize? That's where we get into another one of our jargon words, or concepts in this case, deep learning. Oh, sounds... Deep? <laughs> I don't know why, but my brain really wants to make a reference to the boy's character just now, the deep. Well, you, you just did make the reference, but let's stay on track. <laughs> uh, what is deep learning? So deep learning very simply just refers to, to uh, models that are deep neural networks. So they're just neural network models with lots of layers. And layers are? Layers are... Um, basically uh, uh, matrix computations with other uh, nonlinearities and things like that. So basically the more layers, but you can also think of it in sort of graphical form. Sadie, you know that cutting to Allison's explanation did not make any sense to me. I know, sorry, I couldn't help myself. I found the easiest way to understand the layers necessary for deep learning is to compare them to cells in our visual system. Want me to walk you through it? Finally putting that psychology degree to work? You betcha. 
So you probably know that our visual system doesn't work like a camera snapshot. Sure. To start with, the cells in our eyes, the rods and cones that is, really only pick up on the basics. For cones, we have three different cones that respond to red, blue, or green light. And so a red cone would only fire when it's hit with a red wavelength. Same for the blues and greens. Is that why old tube televisions are RBG? (laughs) Probably. I don't actually know. But to simplify, we're going to skip over the optic chiasm and tons of pathways and hop straight to the visual cortex. So this chunk of brain is located at the back of your skull and it processes the visual information in a series of layers labeled V1 to V5. So V1 acts as a kind of sorting area from the retinas of the eyes and passes signals along to V2. V2 then takes those and passes the information to more layers, namely V3, 4, and 5, while also sending a feedback loop signal to V1. V4 handles mostly processing of color, while V5 focuses on motion, and there's a bunch of other bits involved. But I'm hoping that from this description, you get how the brain's layers are needed to process the complexity of a visual scene. So, are these literally layers stacked at the back of my brain, like a layered cake or something? (laughs) You're making me hungry with that analogy, but yeah, the layers are literally stacked on each other, with connections both feeding forward to the next layer of cells and feeding back to earlier cells to provide a kind of feedback. By passing visual information between these layers, we develop the whole visual scene. So, bring this back to deep learning. Deep learning relies on the same process of layers, where information is passed from one layer to the next, with slight tweaks made each time, and the feedback layers are then used to correct the input and adjust the system. The more layers you add, the more complex calculations you can do on the material. In early layers of processing, as there's like this transformation, this transformation, this transformation, the representations, that the types of information that are being represented at these different layers is, is different, and it seems like roughly more or less gets sort of more complex, more high level, more abstract as you proceed through the layers. And so if you have like a sentence, like the cat went to the store, uh, you may have in early representations have just sort of mostly just representations of the properties of those individual words, maybe their syntactic properties. And then later you start to get other things like semantic dependencies between those things. Uh, you know, if you have the the cat went to the store and then it uh, meowed. Right. right. The, 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 it refers back to the cat. And this is something that models and humans need to be able to compute in order to know what it means in that sentence. So this is a type of thing that may you, we may expect to get represented sort of later as those earlier sort of lower level types of things are represented in earlier layers of these of these deep neural network models. So how many layers does GPT-3 have? It has 96 layers and 175 billion nodes. Dang, Gina. (laughs) Yeah, and while we can tell how many layers there are, because we built it that way, it isn't always clear how GPT-3 is generalizing based on the interactions between those layers or how it updates based on feedback. So we know exactly what the sort of architecture of the model is. That's completely transparent to the people who designed the model. But exactly how the learning of the model plays out, that's very, very opaque. That's Mm -hmm. something that folks are still very much trying to figure out, even with smaller models that have more open access. So we know what all of the pieces are going into the learning process. But what happens in in that learning process and what ends up being represented and what sensitivities happen, what strategies the model develops in order to map between its inputs and its outputs, those are the types of things that are not nearly as clear. 
So would this be like knowing if a neuron is in layer two or three of the visual cortex, but not knowing which other layers it's connected to? More like knowing the neurons, but not knowing how they tweak the information as they pass it along to another layer. We know what the outputs are. We know what types of computations the model is able to do in order to learn the functions that it's going to learn between the inputs and the outputs. But yeah, exactly how it's going to choose to weight those different inputs and and produce that giant function that is going to map between the inputs and the outputs. That's something that's not as clear. Wait, so humans wrote the model of 96 layers and how they connect, but we still don't know how it's learning. Allison says it's opaque, which feels weird because we know all the ingredients going into it. Well, it's an incredibly complex model. Like, did you know that we have a map of all 302 neurons in the C. elegans worm? It's one of the most basic animal models that we use for neuroscience research. But even with mapping all of the neurons and knowing how they all connect, we still aren't able to recreate all its behavior. GPT-3 is similar to that. So, and sticking with the cake metaphor, it's kind of like a technical challenge on the Great British Bake Off. They give you a list of ingredients for the cake and maybe a temperature setting for the oven, but they don't outline the steps to get to the final outcome of that tasty, tasty chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah, that's not too far off as an analogy. And just a reminder: the communication between these layers doesn't just spit out a good or bad sentence. Rather, it's using these transformation between layers via weights to make probability predictions for the next word in a sentence. There are a lot of different types, <laughs> types of parameters in uh, in these models, and all of those are going to define, uh, you know, how information gets communicated from layer to layer between the input and the output. And so, it's going to be a little different from a "that was a good sentence, that was a bad sentence" because it's going to be more like um, how close was the model's probability for the next word to the actual. Word right that, that actually occurred in the text. So to recap, the deep learning part basically means layers that are passing information to each other and doing computations as it moves between the layers. Yep. And the NLP, natural language processing, is using the computing technique to make predictions about what words come next in the sentence. More or less, it makes predictions about possible words and then selects the one that it thinks will fit the best. Yes, yeah, the model is going to be、uh, predicting probability distributions really across the entire vocabulary at every position, and so、uh, you could give the model that, that sentence that I said before: the、uh, he got the pass and scored a touchdown. There was nothing he loved more than a good game of. This is taken from an existing <laughs> psycholinguistic experiment, and it's just one of my、um, examples that I have on the top of my head.、Uh, There was nothing he loved more than a good game of blank, and you could just what the model is going to output is something that you that can be interpreted as a probability distribution over all possible words in the vocabulary, and then you can just look and say, okay, it assigned the highest within that probability distribution. The word that receives the highest probability is say. Football, and and so it, which, for instance, with the Bert model, which was the one that I was testing with those sentences from which that sentence was drawn.、Um, uh, in the case of Bert, I seem to recall that it had a really, really、uh, confident prediction. In that case, it was like point seven, something like that. Whereas in other cases, you may have the most confident, the the highest prediction be like point oh oh two or something like this,、right. or lower.、Um, you may have have it much more distributed because there's a lot less certainty with respect to that prediction. But yeah, it's going to be a probability distribution、uh, over that vocabulary. And based on the probabilities that it identifies, it selects a word that it then gets feedback on and can update the distribution probabilities. Let's take a look at an example sentence like, "Before pouring the Earl Grey, she put sugar in her blank." 
you know, the model thought that 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 uh, iguana should really be the next word here, but actually it was teacup, and so we really need to update our distributions here. And so you're go- that's going to then be back propagated through the model, and and it's going to be updating the various parameters that contributed to that prediction. Man, ninety six layers, and I don't know how many computations between them, just to get you a percent likelihood that you should say teacup instead of iguana. I guess this explains why the human brain has so many neurons and connections, yeah? Well, while programs like GPT-3 are super impressive for their complexity and ability to produce meaningful sounding language, that's probably not how an organic brain works. The way GPT-3 learns probably is quite different from the way that a human learns language. And so the analogy goes, at least to some extent, well, because the, the more humans have been exposed to, the more they can sort of draw on that information and similarly with GPT-3. But humans, in terms of the basics of learning language in the first place, probably learn in a very, very different way than GPT-3 does because humans, quite simply because humans don't seem to learn language purely by predicting. I should mention that Allison's original area of research was cognitive neuroscience, just like mine. So her research does a lot of work comparing between NLPs like GPT-3 and human cognition. There are some similarities, but they definitely don't work in the same way. Oh, this is reminding me of Ben's episode from season one on language learning. Yeah, I think this kind of work is a really good companion piece to some of the ideas he shared. Listeners can actually find that episode in the show notes if they're curious. Okay, so I actually do feel like I have a bit of a grasp on how GPT-3 and NLP systems work, but it's still a lot to digest. Can we take a break? (laughs) Sure. And when we get back, I want to talk about the implications of this work. What happens when we assume more intelligence from GPT-3 and what are some of the dangers that it can create? If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories. Not through opinions and anecdotes, but rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. Well, even with these really sophisticated NLPs relying on deep learning and machine learning, they still aren't true artificial intelligences. They fail in really specific ways, showing that we shouldn't just trust the program to always make the correct choice. Maybe artificial general general intelligence is actually solved with this latest model, but usually the pattern is we then find the cracks, we find the brittleness, we find the types of superficial heuristics that they were using. What does she mean by brittleness? I mean, I've been pretty impressed with what we've learned already. Sure, but a lot of these programs look really impressive at first. But dig around a bit and you'll find it's not always providing information like a human would. To me, I would say the the main risk and the main source of frequent misunderstanding is um, simply overestimating the actual intelligence of these models, right? Um, and this is uh, this is a very easy thing to do, but it sort of happens repeatedly. People often will sort of take at face value what looks like intelligent behavior but which folks like myself and other other folks who, who do the type of research that I do, we tend to take those 
things more with a grain of salt, and, and we tend to be less surprised when subsequently results come out and say, oh, actually, we were overestimating the capabilities are actually brittle in this way or that way. So GPT-3 is just really good at faking it? In a sense, yeah. Often when we see really striking results like this, once we have a chance to analyze it a little bit more, we find, oh, actually, there were some sort of heuristics and things like that that they were able to use or some cheat ways that they were able to cheat. So this is sort of hot off the presses, really recent, interesting results. And I suspect that we will uh, continue to find ways in which we should, you know, sort of uh, temper our expectations and, and um, interpretations of this. So GPT-3 and other similar natural language processing programs are just filling in the blanks based on the data that they're trained on. In some ways, it reminds me of horoscopes. They sound really special and unique to our signs, but it's just general fluffy predictions. And Aries would say that. (laughs) Um, I, as a Cancer, on the other hand, would say, yeah, that probably makes sense. If you look carefully enough and, and test carefully enough with respect to its outputs, what you're going to find is that not only does it not have domain expertise, but it just kind of probably completely lacks any type of common sense knowledge. It probably doesn't even have a lot of the sort of key levels of understanding of what it's even producing. It's just producing stuff that's high probability, you know, and that ends up producing really impressive outputs given how much data it has seen and how much it has managed to be able to represent in terms of abstractions in all of those different layers. In some ways, this actually makes me feel better about GPT-3. At least I know that our jobs are safe for the time being. Is it coming for our jobs? Um, No, I think there's a lot of uh, very clear evidence that uh, ultimately it is going to make some pretty striking mistakes that humans would never make. Exactly. If anything, GPT-3 is like a really sophisticated tool. We embrace the help of computers when it came to storing information or writing new documents. But just like that, it's ultimately a tool. And it's a tool that we have to train, right? In terms of how much human input it needs, I think it's going to vary. Like there are ways that you can set it up to do particular tasks. I mean, as it is, its whole job is just to produce high probability text, basically, and to predict what words should come next. And so you need to do additional things to sort of prompt it to do one task versus another. Right. And this leads me to the other big point that Allison made. Just like a tool can be abused or misused, the same goes for GPT-3. It's probably inadvisable, almost certainly inadvisable, to trust a model like GPT-3 to do anything that actually matters. Based on our conversation so far, I'm guessing Allison isn't saying this because the robots are coming for our jobs? (laughs) Nope. The problem is when these programs seem to kind of over-deliver and then are taken as gospel. When you implement GPT-3 without any oversight and just take its responses at face value, that can be really dangerous. These are models that learn on the basis of the data that they receive, right? And so you can't blame them for for producing things that resemble the data that they're trained on. And so, um, but you absolutely, we should absolutely hold ourselves accountable with respect to how much we trust models that we know work that way and, 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 you know, end up deciding to deploy them for public use. So junk training in, junk responses out. Yeah. So you could also say that the AI will reflect the biases of the people who programmed it? Yeah, this is actually something that we saw with like the Microsoft chatbot on Twitter a few years back. Oh no, what happened there? (laughs) So I should say this wasn't GPT-3, but a lot of the data that the chatbot was trained on came from some of the worst elements of the internet, and the chatbot ended up reflecting that. 
It started saying really racist jerk things. And as is the case with any machine learning, we have to be aware of the kinds of inputs they're getting and not just immediately trust the outputs. This honestly is starting to sound like a metaphor for human relationships. Like we aren't always aware of the things that formed people and why they might be acting like a jerk. But anyway, at the end of the day, GPT-3 is super impressive and is probably helping advance our understanding of language and all sorts of neat stuff. But we shouldn't be trusting it with anything big like online counseling anytime soon. I think that's a succinct way to view it. And you're definitely right that studying GPT-3 and similarly trained deep learning programs is helping advance our knowledge in all sorts of fields. Uh, for us, one of the highest priorities at the moment is continuing to better understand what it is that these models are learning, where they're brittle, and where they're robust. You know, these are really very critical questions to answer in order to, to fill in these gaps that we've been talking about where we say, you know, how much can we really trust these models? What is it that we can trust them to do, and where can we expect them to fail? So that's the type of thing that we've been prioritizing. So basically, they've built the model and shown that it works. Now they want to understand the strengths and weaknesses. And to understand why and how those strengths and weaknesses exist. Science and research is often just the questions, how does that work? Why does this work or why does that not work? The next question as we identify, you know, what these limitations are, a critical question is, how far is the language modeling paradigm going to take us? So this basic paradigm that we've been talking about this whole time that's based on word prediction and context, based on what we've been seeing, there are reasons to think that there will ultimately be uh, a ceiling in terms of what we can achieve with respect to human-like language understanding using this type of learning paradigm. We don't know this for sure, but there are reasons to think that it's reasonably likely that this will not be the, the final thing that will get us to, to, to human-like language understanding. And so then the question is, what is it that we need? Can we take other approaches to complement the language understanding and combine those things? Since humans also are doing this type of predictive statistical processing and things like that, um, this is absolutely, uh, you know, we don't necessarily want to lose all the things that we have gained that are good using language modeling, but there, it seems to me that there's a good chance we're also going to need to complement that with things that allow us to do more systematic language understanding. And so um, what that's going to need to be, that's really the big open question. No wonder Allison works on both machine learning and human language learning. Sounds like we'll need a combination of both to continue advancing artificial intelligence. Yeah, GPT-3 is far from perfect, but researchers are hard at work on a fourth generation, GPT-4, and it'll take some of the findings from both human cognition and computer science. And mathematics. And statistics to keep pushing that work forward. Oh, listen to us back then. We sound so young. Ian, <laughs> that was only from January. So like eight months ago. I like to think that I've grown a lot since then. Mm, okay. Well, looking back, a lot of the concerns with GPT that Allison brought up are directly applicable to the current WGA and SAG strike. SAG is the Screen Actors Guild. That one I knew. Right now, we're basically saying, hey, could you please ensure that we not become obsolete meat sacks because of robots? And the studios are saying, we really don't want to ensure you of that. Um, I believe that our request was met with, no, we're not going to do that, but I'll tell you what, we'll meet once a year to talk about your AI concerns. This seems to be a crossroads and a do or die moment. Um, if we don't get it now, it's unlikely that we will get it in the next three years and the technology might be completely out of the barn by then. 
So the unions right now aren't worried about GPT-3 writing the next season of Abbott Elementary? No, but they're worried that GPT-4 or 5 or 6 will be entrusted to write the whole thing. Or even worse... Have GPT uh, vomit out a script and then have a writer come in at a significantly reduced fee to give it that human touch. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Caitlin didn't go into the creative field of screenwriting just to have to play nanny to a chatbot. She wants to tell her stories, not fix dumb computer mistakes. And I'm just thinking about what inspires humans to create. And it's often this driving need to tell a story or share an idea. Right. Using stories to explore themes and try to make some kind of moral or philosophical argument, that's a huge part of what writers do. But AIs... It's form without ethics or intention, which is also very scary when you consider how important representation is and how much artists should be held to account in terms of what they decide to put out into the world. You can't really hold a machine ethically accountable for something they put out in the world. And that makes for a very muddy situation. Yeah, that's a good point. But wait a minute. Earlier, we mentioned that SAG, that's the actors, have joined the strike. How do they come into this? Well, the actors are more concerned about AI creating digital versions of their faces and bodies which then are owned by the studios in perpetuity. Both demands are about making sure that our respective creative tools and instruments cannot be misappropriated and cannot be used without us. Um, in, in a writer's case, it's their words, it's their ideas. And in an actor's case, it's their face, their body, their voice, the emotional instrument that they bring to art. And um, But it's just in both cases, it's, it's it's saying we are not replaceable and please don't treat us as though we are and please don't actively try to make our lives worse in the next few decades because it's more cost effective. I just wish we lived in a society that valued people and didn't just view them as a tool to enrich themselves. Yes, it might save money, but what's the real cost of treating people as disposable? And on top of that, I'm sure that executives at these corporations are pulling in massive salaries. Why not cut from that? Oh, I know. Couldn't have said it better myself, honestly. And while I was talking to Caitlin about how language models like GPT worked, she brought up this really good point. Isn't the basis for AI-generated scripts and images effectively plagiarism? Because it has learned from texts and images that other people have generated, that humans have made to which they should have a copyright. We don't think about holding copyrights over our tweets or chat logs on social media sites, but maybe we should. That regurgitation, that recycling is coming from materials that humans have generated. So it shouldn't, in my opinion, count as wholly original art coming from AI. That is a fascinating way to look at that. And aren't some writers suing ChatGPT over the same issue? Weren't you ranting about AI companies scraping a fan fiction website the other day? Is that the same idea? Yes. Archive of Our Own, shortened to AO3, had to put out an official statement about the ways they're trying to stop auto data scraping from the site. Because it's such a massive repository of free written stories that can easily be used to train AI models. Sounds like this issue around AI is not going to end with the WGA and SAG strikes. Oh, absolutely not. So let's get back to the topic at hand. 
I mean, I think it's important to keep repeating um, a story that came out in Deadline a few weeks ago that said a studio source said they wanted to make sure that writers and actors lost their homes and their apartments. And I just want to say that that made it very personal for us. It is impossible for it to not be personal for us. These people are saying that they want my three-year-old son to starve and be cold. There are a lot of writers who are very close to that situation already, if not already in that situation. There are a lot of actors who are facing the same experience. And we are here to fight and we are here to stick it out because we are used to living on a knife's edge and we are used to hustling and we are used to side gigs. I just want to say and say as many times as humanly possible, the cruelty is the point. They want it to hurt and they're not being subtle about it. They are saying the quiet part loud. So if you want to support the strikes, you can donate to the Entertainment Community Fund and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And what if you are but a humble high school teacher with not a lot of funds to spare? If you happen to be based in New York and Los Angeles, we absolutely welcome you on the picket line. We've got plenty of extra signs and sunscreen and cold water. Please come down and join us. We would love to have you. We would love to feel your solidarity. Don't forget to check our show notes in the podcast description for more on natural language processing research and how to support the current WGA and SAG strikes. And if you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. By rating and reviewing this show, you really help to spread the word about Carrie the Two so that other listeners can discover us. And for more on the math research being shared at MC, be sure to check us out online at our homepage, mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at MC underscore Institute, as well as Instagram at MC dot Institute. That's MC spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics and statistics connect with the world around us. Send us an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to sadiewitt at mc.institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T at mc.institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy for his production on the show. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We're supported by the National Science Foundation and the University of Chicago. Oh my god, this, this chai is this so coffee? good. This chai is so good. Oh my god. I love this coffee. Oh my god. Coffee is good. The coffee is good. The coffee is good. He <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> just filled. <laughs> Faded out at the end. Dude, interviewing Caitlin was awesome because you can tell she's a writer. She was very eloquent and like had her points ready. It was just very funny because she, she pointed out, she's like, yeah, so we have writers, professional people who make stuff sound good for the signs. And now we have the professional pretty people, the SAG. I know. Oh, my God. That's so true. And like, when our powers combine. <laughs> uh.
would love to be on the picket line with a bunch of professional pretty people. Oh God, I know. I was like, I'm going to go, but yeah. I'm not doing that here. <laughs> Why do you do this to me? <laughs> I mean, you were the one that said chat, but... <laughs> Support the strikes. <laughs>